This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 511 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 511tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 511 Tactical, You can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by GovX. And as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself. And GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses, you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX gives back. Every month they're going to sell a different patch and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com, Register for your free membership and save every single time you purchase. Welcome to episode 405 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute pleasure to welcome on the show Stephen Sashin. Now, Stephen is a former elite gymnast, stand-up comedian, and current tech guru and founder of Zero Shoes. Now, for many of you who've listened to this for a while, you know I'm a huge proponent for barefoot training, for minimalist footwear. But it really had been a struggle to find truly minimal shoes. So prior to this conversation, I hadn't actually tried Zero Shoes myself. The moment we finished it, I actually ordered a pair and I've worn them for the last three weeks. And I can attest they are incredible. So this isn't a paid sponsorship. It's purely unsolicited feedback, but I love their products. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I love your feedback. Please leave feedback. Let me know what you think of the podcast and then leave a rating. Every single five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this podcast is a free library of some of the greatest minds on earth. So all I ask in return is that you pay it forward and share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Stephen Sashin. Enjoy. 
Stephen, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time on Christmas Eve, no less, to uh, <laughs> to come on the Behind the Shield podcast. Yes, you're interrupting my festivist celebration. Absolutely. The, the airing of grievances. <laughs> I think there's, uh, there's so much white noise today, it's probably worth just doing something positive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. All right, so then where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Uh, that's a great question. Broomfield, Colorado, right in between Boulder and Denver. Beautiful. Well, I'd love to start chronologically. So where were you born? And tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Holy smokes. Uh, okay. I, uh, did you say where was I born? Is that the, that the beginning of that yes, one? Yes. Yeah. All right. Uh, I was born in Washington, D.C. and grew up right outside of that in Bethesda, Maryland. I have a younger sister. My parents were, um, I come from an entrepreneurial family. My, my mother's father owned a jewelry store and she did a bunch of businesses on her own. My father was a dentist and had his own practice. Brilliant. All right. And then what about um, athletics? I know you ended up becoming uh, a, I mean, a runner now, but I mean, what was your journey when you were young? Um, well, when I was like seven years old, my parents were trying to find something to do for a hyperactive kid. And I and they they picked up a catalog and asked me to pick something and I picked diving. So I became a competitive diver from the time I was seven till 11 or 12. And then um, I dropped out of diving, frankly, because the pressure was a little too much for me at the time. And I didn't know what to do. And for like, I guess maybe when I was 12, I was just kind of depressed for a year. I didn't wasn't doing anything. And it was very annoying. And then I got to junior high school or middle school is what some people would call it. And um, on the first day. They, they take all the boys and they throw them into, into the gymnasium and they're introducing us to the three gym teachers and giving us some sort of lecture about what, you know, the gym program was going to be. And in the middle of it, one of the gym teachers just very quietly stands up and walks behind the other two guys and without saying a word does a standing backflip and then sits down. And I thought, I want to be that guy. <laughs> and so <laughs> it turned out that this was a guy named Jack Leonard who was a um, like nine-time national, three-time world tumbling champion, uh, just an, not only an amazing gymnast but one of the – and not only an amazing gymnast, gymnastics coach but one of the best teachers of any kind that I've ever met. He's one of these people who could identify what your – potential is and teach to your potential. So everyone on our team did the best they could at what they could do. And there are people who came in onto that team who, you know, didn't have a whole lot of coordination or skill. And, and after not very long, you know, they really had gotten good at the things that he could see they could get good at. And he's continued to do that for, geez, you know, 40 plus years. So, um, anyway, so I became a gymnast. I was an all American gymnast. I was also running track at the same time. The difference there was that my track coach, uh, was also a science teacher. And I don't think he actually understood anything about coaching track, especially coaching sprinters. And so after a while, <laughs> I just remembered, um, I had really bad shin splints. And he said to me, well, is there anything that you can do where it doesn't hurt? I said, well, I don't notice it when I'm running. He said, well, then keep doing that. And I was thinking, well, that's stupid. So um, <laughs> he – and the other thing that happened is when I was – uh, I guess maybe in, you know, it was like 15, 16, somewhere in there. Uh, everybody had a growth spurt except for me. So I, uh, that made sprinting a little bit more challenging. And I, uh, I ended up switching to pole vaulting and long jumping. Um, so that's what I did for my last two years of track uh, while I was in high school. And then um, last but not least, I, uh, when I went to college, I 
I decided to stop doing gymnastics uh, competitively. I was kind of two years in, pardon me, in the wrong direction age-wise to be in the Olympics. And I kind of wanted to have a life as well. So I kept uh, uh, working out, but I stopped competing. And that was like kind of the end of my athletic career for, well, actually I kept training as a gymnast, but when I was 32 and had moved out to Boulder, Colorado, I was uh, in the gym one day and just warming up and kind of landed and twisted at the same time and heard the following sound come out of my knee. And I said, oh, that's probably not good. So um, that that was the end of my gymnastics career. And then I spent um, EGADS just uh, the next 15, 16 years trying to figure out something to do with my body. Amazing. Well, I want to go back to your gymnastics coach, Jack Landon, for a moment, because that I think is such an important concept. And it, and whether it's, you know, athletics or whether it's anything in this social media world that we live in at the moment where we see the best of the best on all these fields adorning our screens. I've, I've kind of commented on this before. There's, it's almost discouraging. I think there's a lot of people who don't even try a sport because they'll never be, you know, Ali or, you know, whatever, whichever sport it is. But being the best version of yourself, I think, is such an important concept. So that's a very, very powerful kind of uh, philosophy that he had. It was it, it was amazing. And, and you know, the other thing that made him special is he's someone who, um, uh, even when he's at the top of his game, was always willing to learn. And there was there was something he learned from a Russian coach um, when he was coaching a bunch of Olympians. And he said this is a, a women's team. And he said to these women, um, we're going to spend the next six weeks relearning how to do a round off, one of the most basic tumbling skills there is, because he learned that there's a preferred direction you should do it in. And many people, <clears throat> pardon me, it's got something caught in my throat. Many people would do it um, in the wrong direction. So he said, we're going to just go back to the basics. And the parents of these kids went ballistic. And six weeks later, they were tumbling better than they ever had in their life. And he actually did something similar to me one summer. Um, I don't remember what we were working on, but he said, yeah, for the entire summer, you're going to be doing these two very basic moves. And I couldn't have been more upset. And at the end of the summer, I was 100 times better than I was before. Um, he was also <laughs> – well, he was also really funny and very creative and very playful and – we all got that from him. I mean, every every gymnast that I know who ever spent time under Jack's guidance, we have very similar personality traits in some ways, uh, and and we all got it from him. And so that was really fun. And he also was an incredible motivator. Uh, the first day in in junior high school for of gymnastics practice, he handed us all uh, some ten to the ten to the inch graph paper, and he says each one of those squares is ten push ups. The first one to fill out the entire paper, front and back, gets a Coca-Cola. And we became the most competitive people you've ever seen in your life. I mean, we were already competitive, but we really, that brought it out. I mean, every day we'd walk up to each other. How many push-ups did you do yesterday? And if someone had done more than you, you would drop and then do another, you know, 50 or 100. And then they'd do, do, they would do 50. I mean, we were doing 1,000 push-ups a day just because we were trying to beat each other. And it made us, you know, super strong. And um, similarly, there's a, a move in gymnastics called a kip. And so if, if you're doing a kip from the ground, you're lying on your back, you kind of bring your feet over your head, and then you extend your legs really quickly and push with your hands to land on your feet. And he says, you know, the first one who can do a kip and land straight-legged wins a Coke. And we just spent weeks just, you know, competing with each other to get a – I mean, it wasn't obviously for a Coca-Cola. It was just, to, you know, to beat the other guy. And um, and 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 he also he also taught us – 
how to describe this, a kind of respect for competition and a, and a, we, I mean, we were the best team in the, in the county or the state for years. I mean, I think we, our record was something like 300 and something and one and, and no one was going to beat us. And, um, personally when I, as a tumbler, nobody was going to beat me. And when I say that, um, I don't want it to sound arrogant. It was just, I, I just happened to be the best guy. And frankly, I don't take it that personally. Um, I didn't know this till I was in my forties, but my grandfather, um, on my mother's side, whom I take after was a gymnast. No one knew until we found his high school yearbook. So just, you know, the right combination of genetics and coaching and timing, I just happened to be one of the best tumblers in the country. And so, but with that, he was very, very, clear that that meant there were a lot of people who were trying to catch me. And so I had to work even harder to stay the best, which may not have been true, but that's the way I, I treated it. And also, um, that I had to treat it with a real serious amount of humility and it wasn't fake. I mean, it was, you know, it was very like when I became an all American and people were congratulating me, I was very confused by their congratulations because all I did is execute the plan that we spent two years working on. So it wasn't, um, this is going to sound weird. It didn't feel like an accomplishment as much as it felt like the appropriate culmination of a lot of hard work and heavy lifting and a lot of people involved. And so, um, uh, and you know, if, if ever anything went wrong during a, during a routine, um, we had to, we, we weren't stoic. Um, but we were, we just treated it like, you know, things don't go perfectly and you do the best you can. I mean, it, I, I literally can't begin to list all of the things that I learned from the six years that we spent together. And we're still, we remain friends to this day, 40 years later. Amazing. Well, it sounds to me just, just hearing that a few things. Firstly, right from the beginning, him doing the backflip, you know, the, I hate that phrase, those that can't teach, because I think that's complete crap. It should be those who can can also teach you know i mean that the, we see these examples of people that are teaching in you know in a, in a personal training space in a school you know sports space that they themselves can't do the moves they themselves are deconditioned so i think that's that's not a good philosophy it's, to stay with well, you know it's a tricky thing because there are some people well look there are some people who can do it and can't teach and there are some people who really are good teachers who can't or never could do it for various reasons. I mean, there are a lot of men who teach, who coach women's gymnastics who don't get on the uneven parallel bars or a balance beam, but you know how to coach it. Um, and so it, but, but I, to your point in a slightly different way, uh, my dad used to say 80% of the people doing any job aren't qualified to do it. And he was probably being optimistic. Um, so there are a lot of people who just don't have the eyes to see or the skill to identify what the, you know, what it is that that person needs to hear or do or feel or see in order to, you know, make that next advancement. Um, and they're just very like, I mean, just jumping ahead to running. There's a coach that I was working with, um, who's a, a, again, a good friend who one day we're doing these drills and he said to me, you know, when you're in the air in that drill, you got to get your hips over your feet better. And I said, dude, I'm in the middle of the air. There's no <laughs> way I can do that. What you mean to say, and you don't know it is that I wasn't taking off in a way that put my hips over my feet in the right way. And he said, oh yeah, I guess so. So he was just parroting something that he had been told that he had somehow intuitively figured out what to do with a bad cue. And that's a very, very common thing. Like you see it in high school uh, track meets when you hear their parents or even the coaches yelling to the sprinters, get your knees up. It's like, 
sprinting, you don't, you don't actively lift your knees. The fact that your knees are coming up is the result of how you're putting force into the ground. It's a reactive thing, not an active thing. And by then it's too late anyway. That's not, you know, it's just bad coaching, but people just, uh, they just repeat the things they hear because they don't know how to identify what really needs to be done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the other thing, yeah, from your story about him, I hear that you sounds like you and your, you know, your uh, teammates enjoyed the journey. It was challenging, but the, the competition wasn't the pinnacle, wasn't the be all end all. So if you did trip, if you did, you know, uh, a subpar performance for you, well, that was just one day in your journey of, you know, of, of gymnastics versus all this pressure being put on competition day. I'll tell you, I'll tell you something funny. If you watch, if you go and find videos on YouTube about gymnast training, there's a, a guy named Niall Wilson. He's a, a British Olympian. And if you watch the videos of them training, you'll see something that's really unusual. You'll see someone do, try and do a trick and have a major wipeout and everyone else bursts into hysterics. I mean, this guy nearly killed himself and everyone's laughing uproariously because we've all done it over and over and over. It's just part of the game. And there's just something, I can't even describe it. There's just something really goofy about, you know, when you completely mess up and are on the verge of ending up in the hospital, it's just the funniest thing in the world. And I, I can't tell you, I mean, that's such an odd, and I'm sure it's not unique to gymnastics, but it's very peculiar with gymnastics. We all just, yeah, what, what you learn about um, re- reality uh, when you're trying to do these really, really challenging things that bodies are not inherently made to do, it seems, um, you know, it, it changes the way you, you think about the world. Yeah, absolutely. And just, just from you know, my profession, uh, the, there's a fear of training for some people because they don't want to look stupid. You know, and and the sad thing is that's completely backwards. That's where you do look stupid. You know, that's where we make our mistakes. So hopefully, when there's a life in the balance, we've we've kind of overcome those, and we can actually perform on the day when we're needed. Well, you know, sometimes and and sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't. I mean, sometimes it's just there. And and you know, this is gonna this is a bit of a tangent. Um, so one of my dearest friends from the track world is someone we became good friends over two events. The first was that um, we were working with the same coach and I noticed that when we were doing warm-ups with this coach, there were certain drills that I wouldn't do uh, because I thought they were stupid. And I noticed that this other guy wasn't doing them either. And I came up to him and said, why aren't you doing this drill? He goes, oh, because they're ridiculous. And I said, yeah, yeah, me too. Um, you know, they're not serving a purpose. They, they, they were just, I don't, you know, it's just like painting by numbers but had no value. Then the other thing that cemented our relationship – is one day he said, you know, I can't believe it. I just said a personal best and I wasn't even going to come to the track today because I felt so bad. I said, have you ever um, had days where you felt great and you could barely make it out of the blocks? He goes, yeah. I said, have you ever had other days where you felt like crap and you performed really well? He says, yeah. I said, well, we just disproved um, sports psychology. And and I've had a similar conversation with a friend who's a, a multiple time Olympian and someone asked her about how she got in the zone and she talked about getting in the zone and I said, did you ever have races where, you know, you crushed it when you weren't in the zone? And she said, yeah, I said, ever have races where you were in the zone and didn't, didn't work at all. She goes, yeah. I said, again, so this zone thing is nonsense. So like just learning how to just take it day by day, event by event, stride by stride sometimes um, is a valuable skill because some days work and some days don't. Absolutely. I actually won a, a national title in taekwondo with the flu when I yeah, felt like shit. Yeah, so. yeah. 
Yeah. No, you know, uh, it's funny. This is going to sound really weird. Um, I, I did a bunch of acting when I was younger. And um, when I was in college, I was in this one play. And we would always invite some professional actor to be um, to be in these some of these performances. And before our entrance, we just got into a conversation off stage and we didn't do any of our warm ups. We didn't do any of our, you know, preparation. We didn't do any anything. We were just talking. And then suddenly we realized we missed our cue because we could hear the other actors like ad living and trying to get our attention. And then we just looked at each other and laughed and we walked on the stage and it was the best performance either of us ever had. Amazing. Yeah, because you're not overthinking it too. You're you're yeah. present. You just you just gotta get in there and do the job. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well then like you said, so you had the kind of um school aged uh sporting career. So at that point, as far as career aspirations, what were you hoping to be when you kind of uh graduated from school? Oh, that's uh, so funny. You think I had hopes. Um, <laughs> so I, well, from the time I was very young, I, I thought I was going to be a doctor. I thought I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon or in some way work with athletes. And I was doing that through high school. And um, in summer breaks, I was training, doing personal training and um, doing a bunch of research. And I'd taken a class in high school that was a one year long, three period class that was, I don't remember what it was called, but it was all for people who were planning on going into medicine. And I got to college, I was a pre-med, I went through that entire program, and I um, was talking to some of the doctors who were doing the kind of work I was interested in, and they basically told me it was gonna be another 12 years worth of study and apprenticeship to do things that I was already doing with people. It's like, you need these letters after your name. And I was going, no, actually, I don't think I do. And uh, so that didn't seem like that was gonna be interesting. And then I, I also, um, in ways that I, I, I only remembered this recently, um, as an undergraduate, uh, there, apparently there was some way to get into the graduate business school for a couple of classes. They let like one or two undergrads every year into the business school in the entrepreneurship program. And somehow I got accepted into that. Um, I, I literally don't remember how, and I don't remember anything that I did other than disappoint my graduate school compatriots because I wasn't, you know, pulling my weight, I don't think. Um, so I thought, you know, maybe I'd go into marketing or business in some way, but I, I didn't really have a plan. Um, I, I was offered a scholarship to a business school and I, um, thought about it, but at the same time they had opened up a comedy club down the street and I was opening for. I was the opening act for all the all the the other acts that were coming into this club. And when I was graduating college, the people who booked that room said, if you want 10 weeks on the road, you know, we'll put you on the road. And I uh, took the letter from Northwestern Business School saying that I could go for free. And I showed that to my father and I said, I'm going to go be a stand up comic. And, How did that um, go down? Not so good. So, <laughs> um, in fact, it was funny. A couple of years later, he'd sent me this article about how most actors um, it, when, if you're in the screen actors guild or the, or what was the, the television version of that after, uh, if you made enough money, you could get free insurance and you had to make a pretty decent amount of money to do that. And my father, like a year into doing standup made some comment about some of my friends who had gone into business and how much money they were making. And I said, um, yeah, I made, I made more than them last year. And he, he didn't understand it. And then he sent me this article <clears throat> about how only 1% of all actors make enough money to qualify for insurance. And I said, yeah, I don't think you understand. I'm, I'm one of those guys. And so uh, he never really understood it. I think he was also jealous. He was a very funny man, uh, but never would have you know, gone, gotten on stage. 
So it it was not uh, not his thing. And then um, and then I was just kind of also a little bored because doing stand up, the the way the job works, you hang out with your friends, terribly fun, goof around, really fun, get on stage for a little bit every night and make people laugh, super fun, hang out with your friends some more, um, and make phone calls to try and get gigs. But there's still a lot of downtime, and I to make a long story very short, ended up going to Columbia University Film School for a graduate film degree. Um, I majored in, in screenwriting and I ended up um, getting so frustrated with the software that existed for writing screenplays that I developed my own. And so I started, so while I was doing comedy, I started a business um, selling this software and again, never had any plans to do that. I knew nothing about software or software development or running a business, um, but that's what I did. Um, and that took me from 1992 to, um, yeah, it's the next, you know, dozen years or so. Beautiful. Well, then uh, you mentioned that you, you know, you ran uh, again in the school age and then didn't for a long time. So yeah. During that time, you, know, you you were talking about still doing gymnastics till you landed in, in a, a painful way. So, were there any yeah. other things that you were doing as far as your your fitness or strength and conditioning? Um, well, when I lived in New York City, I rode my bicycle everywhere, which was an amazingly stupid thing to do in retrospect. I, I thought that I treated it like a video game is sort of what I thought, um, and I rode really well. And I uh, there was a bunch of you know bike messengers who I became friendly with, and I would ride with them, and we'd uh, have a really good time. So I spent a lot of time on a bike. Um, mostly on a recumbent too, which is odd. And then, uh, I, um, when I came out to Colorado, I was also, this is not really a hugely athletic thing, but it was terribly fun. I got into Zen archery. So it's Japanese archery and it's, uh, really, really entertaining. Um, you get to play with these incredible, beautiful seven foot long Japanese bows and, uh, my teacher out here was the bow maker to the emperor of Japan. And, um, that was really cool, but not, you know, certainly not physically taxing, uh, other than the fact that it's, uh, that you want to doing, doing Zen archery, it's called Kudo doing Kudo. You're kind of always on the verge of in control and out of control. You want to really be pushing just the edge of, of not trying to mm, boy, it's hard to describe like the way you even hold the string, you don't hold it. You have a glove with this tiny little, not even, not even 90 degree angle notch in it that you can barely hold the string with it. So it's this game of being as relaxed as you can while you're pulling a really strong bow in a way that if you let go wrong will literally cut your ear off at the very least. Um, so there's a, there's a really cool psychological component to it. Um, and it's also just very satisfying um, in, in many ways. And also frustrating in, in, in an equally large number of ways. Um, when people, it's referred to as, as when people say, why is it Zen archery? Um, you know, how, why do people think of it as a moving meditation? It's interesting because you basically, when you're shooting, like only four thoughts pop into your mind, either something like trying to impress other people or being afraid of something or some kind of striving or some kind of, um, I don't even remember what they are, but after years of just getting those four thoughts over and over and over, you just bore yourself to death. And so then it changes your relationship with your thinking, especially any self-critical thinking. You just don't care <laughs> anymore because it has no relationship to what you're doing. It's like, okay, that's just background noise. So that was kind of fun. Um, and then I, uh, I had to stop doing Zen archery though. Uh, I have a shoulder problem from gymnastics and eventually I just wasn't able to pull a bow very well. And I was just searching for things to do 
So I, uh, I got into some circus arts like Chinese pole is a very, very cool thing. Just a big metal pole that thinks stripper pole, but 30 feet high that you do all these tricks on. And I was having a lot of fun doing that. But, um, since I wasn't going to end up in the circus and it's a very difficult and often very painful thing to do. After a couple of years of that, I stopped. I got into competitive jump roping, which was also super fun and very difficult. Um, and I don't remember what, Oh, I know the reason that I stopped doing that is what led me back to sprinting. And I want to clarify or you know make clear. I was never a runner. I was always a sprinter. The reason that it never occurred to me to be running during that break between high school and when I was 45, 30 years later almost, was that um, it just never occurred to me to go to a track and sprint for no reason. And one day, a um, and I tried running, uh, which I just did not enjoy at all, just going out for a slow run, just uh, not at all enjoyable. And one day, a friend of mine um, came into brunch he had just won his first 5K. Uh, he'd been a runner for a long time. It was the first time he, he won a race. And I said, yeah, I love this idea of running, but I'm not a runner. I was always a sprinter. And he goes, you know, there's a whole master's track and field circuit where they do all the events, including all the sprinting events. And I said, no, I did not know that. And so that's when he introduced me to the local uh, competitive master's track world. And that's that was what 13 years ago. And here we are. Beautiful. So then kind of lead us through the journey. So, you know, I know initially yeah. when you started running it, it, you know, it was less than, than, uh, painless for you. Yeah. So, yeah. and then that, yeah. and that, that aha moment then of, of barefoot and kind of, uh, you know, lead us in that sure. way. Well, um, you, you touched on it. The gist is for the first two years when I was sprinting, I think the longest I went without an injury was two weeks. And it, it just, I was, you know, pulling, twisting, to, I mean, it was just not good. Um, just when I would feel good, the next day I would do something in a calf pull, hamstring pull, something, uh, just was not getting any better. And I, I pulled a hamstring once, um, at, at a, uh, track meet and worked with this one physical therapist who was also a world champion marathon runner who after a couple of sessions with him, he said, if, if what I've done, which by the way, was the most excruciating thing I've ever felt, he would, people would often take painkillers before they would go see him. Uh, he, he just worked so deeply and so hard. At one point he's working on my hamstring. He says, how's that feel? I said, I don't know. Everything just went white. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like the color white. <laughs> yeah. Just like my entire field of vision just blanked out. So, um, uh, and you just kind of wait for the endorphins to kick in just to have a little relief. People would literally come in with towels to bite on so they could scream into them. I mean, it was, you know, painful work. Anyway, he said, um, uh, if, if this didn't help in any way, you got to go see a real doctor. So I went to, uh, an orthopedic surgeon who took an x-ray of my lower back and hips and came in and said, so what'd you do 30 years ago to break your back? I said, uh, what? He goes, yeah, look right here. Your, your spine is broken. I said, oh man. I said, well, um, I was an all American gymnast. He goes, yeah, that's all I need to know. Uh, but I could think of like three things that could have done it. I don't know which. And so I, uh, I, I didn't know what to do. I, I mean, it, it wasn't going to change. And so that's when my friend, the guy I mentioned who, uh, helped me agree that sports psychology was mostly bullshit. He said, why don't you try running barefoot? and see if you learn anything from doing that. And I thought, uh, all right, why not? And it just so happened that literally the next weekend, there was a local barefoot running coach doing a workshop. So I thought, all right, let's go see what I discover. And 
that first barefoot run, again, I'm a sprinter. I had never run more than a mile of my, on my own volition and did not enjoy one step of that. Uh, but taking off my shoes and running around, we were on grass and on gravel and on roads and on trails, just, you know, everything we could think of. And I was so entranced, so enthralled with the experience. It was so, I mean, it was just fascinating. And I was just experimenting. Like what happens if I land on my foot this way, or if I move my foot and land on it that way, or if I run faster, or if I run slower, or if I move my legs faster without running faster, or move my legs slower without running slower. I and mean, just like everything I could think of, it was just, I was just so curious because it was so engaging. And at the end of, you know, this run, um, I had no idea how long we had gone out or how far we had gone. There was someone who had a GPS watch and I said to her, you know, how far was that? She goes, that was a little over 5k. I was like, I I'm sorry, what? And I could have kept going. It's just that we ran out of time. So that stunned me. And I, and I was just kind of reveling in that when I got into my car and I noticed that I had a big blister on the ball of my left foot. Now, I've since learned that when something like that happens to the average human being, they think, oh, see, this doesn't work. Look, I got a blister. I, for whatever reason of having mental problems, thought, hey, how come my right foot is fine? <laughs> and so, and by the way, it occurred to me, my left leg was the one that got injured more often. So I thought that was really fascinating. And I figured next week, we're all going to go out for another barefoot run. And I still had this gaping hole on the bottom of my foot. And I thought, if I can find a way to run that isn't hurting, then I'm probably not doing the thing that caused that problem to begin with. So let me just give it 10 minutes. If it doesn't work, you know, I'll wait till everything heals. Then maybe I'll try it again. Maybe not. I don't know. So nine minutes and 50 seconds of sheer agony later, I was just about to give it up. And then uh, in one stride, I mean, literally, just like that, everything changed. My running became lighter and easier and faster. My breathing relaxed. Everything got better. Now, what happened, and I didn't realize it at the time, is that what I had been doing as a sprinter, the whole idea is you're supposed to land on the ball of your foot. Well, I had been overstriding. I'd been reaching out so my foot was landing in front of my body, in front of my center of mass too far while I was basically pointing my toes. So every time my foot hit the ground, I was putting on the brakes and putting on, putting force on that ball of my foot where I was landing. And I did it more on my left foot than on my right foot, apparently. So, and then I just had stopped overstriding because basically my brain got the idea that I wasn't going to stop doing this painful thing. So essentially it figured out what it had to do differently to get rid of the pain. And, uh, and then it never went back. I just kept running barefoot to, you know, lock that in, which didn't take very long for me. Um, and then, then the next thing that I did was I knew that I wanted to just be barefoot as much as I could just to really feel the ground to make sure that my body was doing what it felt like it should be doing. And I started making sandals based on this 10,000 year old design where I got some rubber from a um, footwear repair place and some, some nylon cord from Home Depot and put them together in a variation of a design that was about 10,000 years old. And that's what I walked around in because I wanted to be able to get into restaurants without people yelling at me for being a barefoot hippie freak. And, uh, and in the interim, my injuries cleared up. I became faster. That's, that was the first year I became a master's all American, uh, and, you know, never looked back. And the, the short form of where that led to from a business perspective was simply that I made 
like I think, I guess when I, the first bit of rubber that I got, I made maybe four or five pairs of sandals for one pair for my wife who just kind of patted me on the head and didn't understand what I was doing. And a, a couple for some of the other runners. And then they kept asking, people kept asking for more. And after I'd made about, I don't know, 50, 60 pairs, that original coach, that barefoot coach, his name is Michael Sandler said, I'm writing a book. I've got a contract for a book called barefoot running. And if you treated this little sandal making hobby, like a business and had a website, I'd put you in the book. And so I rush home and I pitch this incredible opportunity to my wife who assures me that I am a complete moron and it's a bad idea, won't make any money, waste of time, total distraction. And as a good husband, I said, yeah, you're right. I, I won't do it. And as a typical husband, after she went to bed, I built a website. So <laughs> um, she kind of growled at me the next morning and I said, look, the people that are ranking in the search engine results for the keywords that I care about, they're all there by accident. And I've been an internet marketer because of my software company for a number of years. I said, this could be a good case study for a search engine marketing business that we were starting. Um, so, you know, maybe it'll turn into a car payment. And within, and I thought it would take me maybe three months to sort of dominate the search engines. And it only took me about six weeks. And this was, by that point, it was the middle of January, but it was suddenly clear that what we thought might turn into a little hobby that would be a car payment was our full-time job. And, um, and that's, that's kind of how Zero Shoes began. That's amazing. Well, I mean, I really want to explore Zero Shoes in a minute, but I want to go kind of back to, to educate yeah. people on, you know, the, the journey of the modern shoe. Cause I, I found myself <laughs> and I don't even know where originally it became a uh, deliberate thing, but I've been working out barefoot for years and, and I grew up on a farm in England. So obviously barefoot wasn't, wasn't the best, uh, you know, mode for muddy, rocky, you know, farmlands and tractors and all that kind of stuff. But as I moved over here, you know, I'm living in Florida now. I lived in California um, for a while as well. You know, there's a lot more opportunity for flip flops and, and barefoot. But I always got, you know, laughed at early days from, from working out, um, in the CrossFit gym. But, you know, as time goes on, you know, people are deadlifting barefoot more and, you know, doing a lot more. Um, so I'm a complete sold advocate for barefoot training and, and minimalist shoes. Um, but as, as a, a firefighter, you know, I started looking back and going, my God, the thing, you know, the shoes that we wear in a tactical space are just ridiculous. Yeah. Horrendous. Ridiculous. And, and they're completely over, overbuilt for what we do. When we go into a fire, yeah, we need to have the steel toes and all these things because we're, you know, in an absolute disaster space. But, you know, most of the stuff that we do, EMS calls, we don't need it. So if you wouldn't mind, kind of walk me through, especially, I guess, the, 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 the modern the, sports shoe, the, like the how and why. Yeah. Well, let me, let me back up before we do that to talk about tactical things and, and emergency providers. Um, uh, the, the Las Vegas shooter, the story about the police officer who took him down is amazing. He started to run at, I don't know if he was running towards the guy or after the guy, but either way he was running and couldn't run in his shoes and took off his shoes and, and chased the guy down in his socks. And that was, um, that didn't get a lot of attention, but I think it should have. It's very important. But anyway, let's just start with the simple thing. A quarter of the bones and joints of your entire body are in your feet and ankles. And you have more nerve endings in the soles of your feet than anywhere but your fingertips and your lips. That suggests you're supposed to use those things I <laughs> in think your so. legs. <laughs> you know, they're supposed to bend and flex and move and almost most importantly feel. And if you don't let your feet do their job, which is all about balance and mobility and agility, 
then all that function tries unsuccessfully to move upstream into other joints like your ankle, your knee, your hip, and your back, which aren't made for that. So the whole idea is you want to let your feet do their job so the rest of your body can do its job. And that feeling thing is a huge one because all those nerve endings are telling your brain what's happening with really the rest of your body so that your so that your brain knows how to control the rest of your body. And if you get in the way of that, which modern shoes do, they squeeze your toes together. I mean, for anyone wearing shoes now, take a look at the shape of the toe box of your shoe and then take your shoe off and tell me if your foot is that shape. And if it is, it shouldn't be. <laughs> it's only because you squeezed it into something that's pointy. The other thing is most modern shoes, they elevate the heel. Um, and I'll tell you why in a second. It's an amazing story. But that messes with your posture because it sends your hips forward and then you have to adjust for that by kind of leaning backwards slightly. They don't, there's enough cushioning that you don't feel the ground enough to get that feedback that you need. Um, there's arch support, which is, which sounds like a great idea. And I'll tell you why, uh, where it came from in a bit. But if you know, if you support quote unquote, any joint, put your arm in a cast, it gets weaker over time. Well, same thing with arch support. There's actually research coming out showing how they put arch support in the feet of healthy uh, runners' shoes. The shoes, wait, the shoes of healthy runners. Let's do it that way. Um, and within 12 weeks, they had lost up to 10% of the muscle mass in their feet. I mean, just imagine what that does over time. And so now your brain isn't getting information. Your feet are getting weaker. That's not good for things like balance, which is a thing that kills many, many, many elderly people who don't have good balance fall down, break their hip and die, which is something that happened to my dad six years ago. So, oh, and then there are also the, on shoes, there's usually a flared sole, which is part of quote motion control. And what that does is it means that you end up hitting the, sh the shoe hits the ground way before your foot would normally hit the ground, which changes the way your foot actually, uh, works with the ground. And so Dr. Bill Sands, who used to be the head of uh, biomechanics and uh, engineering for the U S Olympic committee, he, he would show that almost every shoe you wear changes your gait in ways that you don't even know is happening because of the construction of the shoe, which brings us to the question, if shoes are that crazy, why do they look like that? Why is, why is it that you could walk into a running shoe store and basically swap the logos of almost any shoe with any other shoe and you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. And this is something that doesn't get a lot of press. Um, because it, well, you'll, it'll be obvious why way back when, uh, Nike was sharing a building with some, I can't remember if they were orthopedic podiatrists or sports podiatrists. And Bill Bowerman came into their office one day and said, you know, I'm getting all these new runners who are getting Achilles tendonitis. What do you think I should do? And some of these doctors said, well, clearly what's been happening is they've been wearing higher heeled dress shoes, so their Achilles tendons have shortened. And so what you want to do is put a wedge of foam in the shoe to accommodate that Achilles tendon shortening, basically make a higher heeled running shoe. And so that's what he did. And the shoe sold really well because it was a new and novel thing. And the idea of cushioning, I mean, the original Nike waffle trainer was basically flat. It was basically a, a running flat, um, you know, maybe 10 millimeters of, of, of not very good foam and a very thin sole. It was a great shoe back in 1972-ish. But then, you know, this whole um, let's elevate the heel thing happened. And cushioning is one of those things that intuitively makes sense. You lie in a bed, it feels good if it's cushy. There, you know, sit in a chair, you want it to be cushy. That feels good. So you think, must be the same thing for my feet. Well, the research shows that quite the opposite. 
that if you have cushioning underneath your foot, again, you can't feel anything. Cushioning foam breaks down and wears out in uneven ways, and that can you know mess up the alignment of your joints. And even more, there's tons of research showing that it doesn't reduce impact forces. In fact, it can often increase impact forces because your brain is going, I can't feel anything, so I'm going to try and land harder just to get some feedback. Um, and so anyway, that original Nike, you know, wedge, um, that kind of caught on and the footwear industry is just a bunch of copycats and they're a bunch of Frady cat copycats. So if something starts to sell well, something new starts to sell well, all the other shoe companies jump on the bandwagon as fast as they can because they're afraid that if, um, they don't, they're never going to make a penny again. Now to jump way ahead of the story. That didn't quite happen in the minimalist, quote, barefoot world because the shoe companies knew that they couldn't sell two completely different stories at the same time. They couldn't sell all this great cushioning is good for you and no cushioning is good for you. And so they made things that were what uh, Dr. Irene Davis at Harvard calls partial minimalist shoes. And her research shows that those are the worst for you because they don't have enough cushioning to deal with the fact that you might overstride and land on your heel. And they have enough cushioning that you can't feel anything. So you're not going to adapt and change your gait to something more natural and efficient. All right, backing up. So these guys say to, to Bowerman, um, you know, make this wedge, uh, foam heel lift shoe. Now, when you do that, because you have this extra padding under your heel, uh, you're going to tend to land on that padding. If for no other reason, then the padding just got, gets in the way of what you would do if you didn't have the padding. So Dr. Dan Lieberman, also from Harvard, has some great video where he was in Africa and he has a, a video of some habitually barefoot runners and their running form is just beautiful. They land just on sort of their midfoot or forefoot right underneath their center of mass. I mean, just, uh, just utterly beautiful. And then he put some traditional running shoes or not traditional, some, some modern running shoes on their feet with the big elevated heel. And they immediately were landing on their heel with their foot far out in front of their center of mass. Now, the research shows that when you do that, you end up with, you have a relatively straight leg. In fact, I was just at my physical therapist this morning, got some work done on my elbow and they had a, f a photo in their, in their waiting room of two runners. And one of them, his foot is just hitting the ground and his leg is fully straightened and his foot is like, oh man, you know, two feet in front of his center of mass. And so it's putting on the brakes by putting your foot in front of your body and it sends a spike of force right up through your joints when you do that as well. So, but the other thing is having a wedged heel is your heel is a ball. And when you land on a ball, it's unstable. So that's when they built in the flared heel to be quote motion control. And they changed the density of the foam to try and deal with the fact that you have this unstable thing that you just landed on. And because they flared the sole, typically if you're going to land on the outside of your heel, it makes your foot roll to the inside. So you go from what's called supination to pronation too quickly. So they try to build in pronation support, which by the way, there is zero evidence whatsoever that pronation is a problem or has ever caused a problem. Zero. But we'll come back to that too. Anyway, you land on your heel. It's a ball. They build in motion control, which doesn't work because no amount of foam is going to deal with the fact that when you hit the ground, if you're a 150 pound person, you're going to hit the ground with between 450 and 600 pounds of force. Foam doesn't handle that. The next thing that happens is if you're landing with your 
foot in front of you and your heel outstretched like that or your, your, your leg outstretched and landing on your heel, your foot is basically flat when it comes and hits the ground. Now, think about doing a bicep curl. You know you're weakest when your arm is straight and strongest when your arm is engaged at approximately 90 degrees. Well, your feet kind of work the same way. When your foot is already flat on the ground, it's in a weak position when it needs to be strong. And the only way to make it strong is by using that arch that's in your foot. It doesn't matter if you have flat feet or high arches. The bones form an arch. And the only way that happens is if you land on your forefoot or the ball of your foot with it basically underneath your body and it preloads the bones in the right position to give you the most support. Instead of that, if you're not doing that and you're putting your arch under strain when it's in the weakest position, then suddenly that leads to things like plantar fasciitis. So then the shoe company's built in arch support so you don't have to use your arch at all in that weakened position. So that became the modern running shoe. Now here's the punchline. Some 30, 35 years later, a good friend of mine who worked at Nike for 30 years was at a track meet with one of those orthopedic podiatrists who came up with this elevated heel idea. And he said to the guy, your idea has become the design that every modern athletic shoe is using. What do you think about that? And the guy says, it was the biggest mistake we ever made. He said, we made it up. We had no evidence for any of the things we said. We were making a lot of prosthetic devices, so we saw everything through a lens of, you know, what prosthetic can we add to this? But we had no evidence for the Achilles shortening idea. We had no evidence that adding this cushioning would be useful. We made it up, and it was a huge mistake. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And it's funny because, I mean, I can I can uh, testify to that just myself. So firstly, being a coach for a long time, CrossFit coach, um, you know, there was a point a few, probably six, eight years ago where pose running started becoming a discussion. And I think that was kind of when the, the, the five fingers and those kind of things were starting to find their way out too. Um, and so I, I changed, you know, the way I ran. I realized I was doing exactly that. I was overstriding. I was heel striking first. And, and as soon as they said exactly what you just said, you're putting on the brakes and you look at that anatomically, you're like, yeah, my, of course I am. I'm digging my heel in ahead of my my hips um but uh but then with the work boots as well i've been retired now for two years from the from the fire service um and i've watched my feet splay out to nice and flat again <laughs> and i've always worn you know like i said barely ever worn shoes outside the fire service but every third day i was in some sort of you know work boot you know whatever it was even towards the end they were better versions but still crammed into a work boot so I thank you so much for telling that story because I think until people understand why shoes look the way they do, you know, it's just, oh, these, these barefoot hippies are trying to sell us their version of the shoe. And, and you talked about Africa. My argument has always been, well, what did we wear before these shoes were around? Look around the world. We were all barefoot. Well, and, and, or basically in something, the, the footwear evolved to be something to protect the bottom of your foot and something to hold that protection on your foot. And, and when people say to us in the barefoot slash natural movement world, you know, where's your proof for which we have tons, by the way, um, I say, no, no, you, you don't understand. We're not the intervention. The quote, modern athletic shoe is the intervention. Ask them where their proof is. There isn't any. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. All right. Well then, um, so before we kind of get into some other tangents that I want to get to, tell me about um, 
you know the actual shoes themselves how you've engineered them differently and then and then obviously the different types the the sporting ones the the dress shoes that kind of thing so what we started with again was a do-it-yourself sandal kit we we had a four millimeter thick piece of rubber that you would cut out to the shape of your foot and you'd strap it on with you know a lacing style that um that i found and 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 then modified and then a whole bunch of other lacing styles that i figured out along the way and then other lacing styles that other people figured out along the way so for the first three and a half years we just had a do-it-yourself sandal kit Again, just that's what people, you know, did for millennia all around the world. And people did everything from just taking a walk to running ultramarathons. We had a couple who ran a seven-day, uh, 256K stage race across Madagascar in just a pair of those sandals. They show up at the race and everyone's like, well, where are your shoes? They said, what do you mean? We're wearing them. It's like, no, like, you know, your shoes. They said, what, what are you talking about? They said, don't you have like shoes? They said, well, we have some extra laces in case we, you know, break one somehow, but no. They said, don't you have like a backup? Pa- I mean, what are you going to do? They said, we're going to run the race. And beat and, you and, probably. <laughs> and they, well, you know, they were really sweet. They ran as a couple and they didn't really care about winning. They just wanted to have fun running. And, but what they did is they didn't end up in the emergency tent, which almost everyone else did with toenails falling off and skin being ripped off. Cause in that race, you'd run through water and then you'd be in a desert or on packed gravel or on packed mud or so, you know, it was putting your feet under tremendous stress, except for them, they'd run through the water in their sandals. And then three steps later, the sandals are dry. So they never had an issue with Thing, and they never had anything, you know, poking their toenails. So they were fine. At the end of this, they're looking around saying, anybody else want to go for another 10K today? And everyone else was, you know, unable to move. So we have lots of stories like that. Um, but then people would say everything, almost everything we've done has evolved from customers telling us what they wanted next. So first was, you know, here's a do-it-yourself sandal kit. And then people would say, that's great, but there's no way I'm going to make my own. So we were doing custom-made sandals where we would kind of pre-lace them and do that for people, but that got to be uh, too onerous. But so then we did a ready-to-wear version of that same Warache style sandal. And then people would say, that's cool, but I don't like things between my toes. So there was a toe strap on the original sandal design. And even though it's not like a flip-flop, because you don't have to jam your toes into the thong and grip with your toes to hold it on your foot. The lacing system holds all the way around your foot, so your foot can stay totally relaxed while you do that. But nonetheless, people said, I don't want something between my toes. So we came up with like a sport sandal style. So it's webbing that goes across your foot instead of something between your toes. and But still with a super thin um, rubber sole. And then people said, I'm doing a bunch of trail running, and I just need a little more protection when I'm on the trails. So we added just... A little bit of foam, I mean, like a tiny amount, the amount of compression that it gives is so, so small, like less, probably a millimeter maybe. But it's interesting because people report that that, sh- that sandal is incredibly comfortable. And I, I think there's an evolutionary reason why that tiny, tiny amount of give feels so good in your brain. And my guess is that sometime way back when, as we were evolving, we learned that that kind of, that amount of give in the ground was telling you something good was nearby. Food is nearby. Water is nearby. Something is nearby because otherwise it just doesn't make sense. Um, so that was, so then that was our sandal line for a while and people were saying that's cool, but, um, I actually need some shoes for the winter and for the office. So we came up with a casual canvas shoe 
And uh, with, again, the same basic sole as our sandals. So the first week we had it out, people were saying, hey, I just climbed a mountain in these. Hey, I just ran a marathon in these. Like, what? It's a cat. All right, whatever. So and then people people said, well, I could use a running shoe. So we made a running shoe. And then I need a trail running shoe. So we added extra lugs on the trail running shoe and made the sole more like that um, that other sandal with that tiny bit of hidden foam for a little extra protection. And it's just evolved from there to a complete line and, and, and a rapidly growing line of shoes, sandals, and boots that are both casual and performance for winter, spring, summer, fall. I mean, it's just a whole, we, basically people, again, keep saying, here's what I need next, and then we do that. And then we have you know some ideas on our own that we know people haven't thought to ask for because they didn't think it was possible. And then we've done some of those too, like a, a women's flat that we came out with in the um, August of this past year that sold out faster than anything we ever had. And, um, and similarly like a, a calf high women's boot and a winter snow boot, um, that sold out faster than we ever imagined. So we, those were not requests we got. Those were things that we thought maybe would be good. We had no idea and turned out to be great. Brilliant. Well, a couple of things. So firstly, you mentioned about, you know, having to hold the flip-flop on. That's something I've always found, you know, when I've worn traditional or non-traditional flip-flops, the way you want to look at it. Um, but the the muscles in the foot, I found that in the, especially the work boots, it completely disengaged any of the kind of yeah. muscles. Obviously, your proprioception is completely shot too because you've got steel shanks and all that stuff. Um, so tell me about that. When, when you are barefoot or wearing, you know, one of the zero shoes, um, yeah, what is the effect of that on on foot musculature, and then therefore um, overcoming injuries? Sure. So um, I can't make any medical claims. We are not a medical device, and more importantly, there is not specific research done with our shoes to um, uh, to answer that question explicitly. But I can point to the research. That's, that's really, really close. Um, and there are a number of research labs that are using our shoes pretty much exclusively now because when the initial research was being done on minimalist and natural movement, we didn't have shoes. We only had sandals. And the people doing the research wanted to use products that they thought normal humans would wear, not just crazy hippie freaks. So, um, so the research is very, very clear. From Sarah Ridge, for example, Dr. Sarah Ridge at BYU, her research showed that just walking in a minimalist shoe like ours builds intrinsic foot muscle strength as much as if you were doing an actual foot strengthening exercise program. Um, she didn't do it. Unfortunately, she didn't have a group of people wearing the shoes and doing an exercise program. Um, that would have been really interesting. But suffice it to say, just walking in shoes builds foot muscle strength. And look, it's really simple. It's use it or lose it. I mean, that's the the bottom line of what we're talking about here. Uh, there's another bit of research from Dr. I, uh, Isabel Sacco where she's in Brazil. She put minimalist footwear on elderly women, I think. I don't think it was men. I think just elderly women who had knee osteoarthritis. Gave them no instructions, just said, wear these shoes. And f I don't know what percentage of them, but for many of them, their knee osteoarthritis went away. Not just like the pain was reduced, it went away. This is determined by, by x-rays or, or other, um, uh, other imaging. And I highlight that just because I saw some research recently on some like $7,000 shoes that are designed to help with knee pain. And in the study that they quote, they never actually, they said, you know, this was knee pain caused by knee osteoarthritis, but they never actually proved that the people had osteoarthritis, knee osteoarthritis to begin with. 
and it was just self-reporting about the pain and the change of pain. Uh, so that was really crazy. Uh, there's, it was just bad, bad science that they're using to sell something super expensive. Um, and so those are, you know, like the two biggest, most interesting bits of research that are relevant. Uh, there's some people who are doing some research on balance and not surprisingly, if you can feel things better, you can have better balance, but that study hasn't come out yet. We have, um, one of my favorite things is not a study, but we had a customer come in, try on our shoes and was walking around outside of our office, just marveling at how much he could feel. But he felt like he says, I can feel things, but I feel safe. It's like kind of like a foot massage when I'm walking over at all this, you know, I, we got some big rocks outside of our office and it was a really big deal for him about how much he could feel because he's blind. And I, I literally apologized. I said, I can't believe it never occurred to me to make, to make this or make the, the, the vision impaired community aware of this. Cause clearly there's value here. Now I will concede that our shoes are not the same as being barefoot because you have a layer of something between you and the ground. And if you just put your bare feet on the ground, you can feel so many things. Your feet are super, super sensitive. So, you know, we do, we do diminish that a little bit. Um, but we make our shoes so that a, your toes can splay they're flat, they're low to the ground, they're super flexible, they're so lightweight. The number one thing people say to us when they put on our shoes is, oh my God, it feels like I'm not even wearing anything. Um, and then the next thing they say is, um, wow, it feels like my posture is getting better because the heel isn't elevated. And then they then they just start running around. Um, and there was something else, oh, but we also have a, a product that comes from a friend of ours, Dr. Emily Splickle, uh, called Naboso, N-A-B-O-S-O, which means barefoot in Czech, uh, Naboso insoles. And they're designed with this very interesting pattern that adds extra foot stimulation. And when, and you can buy them as, as insoles, as, um, uh, insoles and put them in your shoe if you like. And, when I first got them from Emily, uh, she sent them to me and I was prepared to let her down gently because I tried like reflexology insoles and all these different things that are supposed to stimulate your feet and none of them did anything. And, you know, so I was trying to prepare to figure out how to be polite and, and turn down someone. Uh, and so I put them in my shoes. I walked around for a couple hours and then as I tend to do in the office, I took off my shoes and was walking around barefoot and my feet were like grabbing the ground and my calves felt like they were totally you know, ready to go. Like they were preloaded. It was, it was amazing. And so that's why we started selling them. So for people who want a little extra stimulation, we have those as well, including a sandal made with that Niboso material. Now, again, not the same as being barefoot where you get variations in what you feel with almost every step. But uh, if you just need a little more stimulation, you know, that's a way of doing that. So our goal is always to give you as the most, the closest thing to a natural movement experience as possible with the level of protection or use case um, uh, requirements that you might need. Love it. Well, you talked about the elderly as well. I think this is a very important thing because as, as our community knows, you know, a lot of times when people fall, especially if they break a hip or, you know, uh, um, their pelvis or one of the, the, the muscles of the lower leg, excuse me, let me start that again. I'll cut that bit out. So as our profession knows, you know, especially if we have the elderly have a fall, um, that can be basically life ending because they lose their mobility yeah. and it's a downward spiral. So to me, when you look at a lot of elderly men and women, they're in these ridiculous, I mean, like almost like a caricature of sneakers. Now the elderly it's, sneakers it's, are like platform shoes. It's unbelievable. I mean, you know, one of the things that happens every couple of years, somebody puts out some research where they, they've essentially done the exact same 
device, which is something that vibrates the foot in some way, whether it's um, an insole that's vibrating the sole of your foot or something that's vibrating your ankle. I mean, there's like there's a handful of them that have come out in the 11 years that I've been doing this. Um, and they show, hey, you know, this is helping elderly people uh, walk better. Hey, it's helping people with Parkinson's, you know, walk a little better and have better mobility as they're in those gigantic shoes that you that you mentioned. And I wrote a blog post years ago um, after I saw the first one of these magic vibrating insole things and said, you don't need a magic vibrating insole. Just take off your damn shoes and go for a walk outside. And I got an email uh, some number of weeks later from a guy who's 82 years old. He said, I was actually looking for the magic vibrating insoles, but I found your blog post instead. And I decided to put your theory to the test. And that was two weeks ago. And I just threw away my walker. Wow. Doesn't surprise me though. It really doesn't. No, I mean, not. I mean, now you're telling, you know, your feet are telling your brain, Hey, here's what's going on down here versus you basically yeah. have cut off all messaging from, from the feet up when you're wearing the shoes that a lot of us wear at work. Well, and if you think about it, there's a thing that your brain does. So your brain is wired to pay attention to your body in specific ways. And if you don't give it the right feedback, it, it, it modifies itself. It does a thing called de-differentiating. So imagine if you taped your first two fingers together, um, after a while, because you can't move them independently, your brain just stops paying attention to them as two separate fingers. And literally there's neurons that change the way they're wired and your brain will then essentially think that you only have one finger where you had two. And if you then untape your fingers, you won't be able to move them independently for a while until your brain map redifferentiates back to normal. Now, the good thing is it likes to be back to normal whenever it can. So if you've been keeping your feet cooped up in shoes that don't let them move and feel, the brain map for your foot de-differentiates. But when you get out of that situation and start giving yourself stimulation again, the brain is like, oh my God, this is awesome. Um, we have a number of people who, when they've switched to our shoes or started going barefoot, um, who called us and said, is it normal that I just want to do this all the time everywhere I can go and just feel as many things as possible? It's like, <laughs> yep, totally normal. In fact, for some people, they, they feel like it's a little overstimulating at first and they have to just kind of, you know, wean themselves into it, if that's the right way of saying it. Wean is usually the other way, but I guess adjust to it um, more slowly because the brain is like so um, I'm going to uh, anthropomorphize in a way. It's so thankful to be getting this information. It overreacts. So some people just need to do a little less at first until your brain learns to, you know, deal with all that new information or that correct information uh, again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the the lightweight element too. And that's something that I found, I mean, you know, way before I, I'd learned about you. And I want to say thank you to Miguel the, who introduced us as well. Oh, yeah. Um, but, you know, I, what I really love was when uh, New Balance started getting the, the, the Minimus. Like it was so refreshing to have a shoe that A, you could – you know, somewhat feel the the ground. I know, I know that you know your shoe is very different to theirs. Theirs is still, as you mentioned, the kind of halfway house. But um, but but just the weight. And again, then yeah. I would retroactively look back and go, my God, the things that we strap to our our feet in our <laughs> professions are like diving boots. They really yeah. are. So tell me about the weight of the shoe and the impact on the rest of the body. Um, the shoe that I'm wearing right now is called the Speed Force, and a men's size nine weighs about five and a half ounces each. And which is crazy, crazy light. Our first running shoe, the Prio, um, only weighs about seven, seven and a half ounces each. So everything we do, we try to make things as lightweight as we can. Even our, uh, our hiking boot is, um, like 12 ounces, uh, instead of most, which are 18 to 24. So the lightweight thing is just really important because it, it, 
it's one of the factors that helps you not alter your gait unnaturally. Like if you remember, remember the toning shoes? Oh, is that the ones with the, uh, the big blocks on the front? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, like just giant thick sole with a big rocker bottom. Oh yes. And, and um, Kim Kardashian was uh, in, in one of the ads. It's like, you know, these are great for your butt. And uh, the companies that made them got, got their butts sued for making unfounded medical claims and that, that, that they couldn't substantiate. But my joke is, yeah, they're good for your butt because they weigh like two pounds each. And so uh, just swing your legs that way, just it, it, it doesn't work. Let me th- describe this as a sprinter. So when you're running, and especially if you're sprinting, you want to be able to move your, your limbs as quickly as you can. And any weight you're adding, especially weight you're adding to the bottom of your limb, for those of you who are into physics, you know, you're, you're changing the moment arm. Um, that's, that's problematic. So you just want to have something as lightweight as you can, but again, it still serves the functions that you need. Yeah, well, exactly. And you think about you know, the, the example you made with the Vegas shooting and, you know, any kind of officer foot pursuit, you know, if they're having to climb things, even the fire service, you know, if it's a medical call, I'm not talking about fire, you know, there may be you know, multiple flights of stairs that we have to carry and every single step, you know, you've got those weights on the end of your, your lower legs or your lower limbs, yeah. should I say. So again, it, ju- it just makes sense. And I know the challenge now, and that's what Miguel was talking to you about is, is trying to find that happy medium in a tactical boot. Cause I mean, there has to be some protection, yeah. you know, especially in the military space. But, you know, we're, we're still reverse engineering from, you know, the kind of Dr. Martin style, uh, military boot of a hundred years ago. Right. And, and, you know, we have a, a lightweight hiking boot and we have a fully waterproof hiking boot. And, um, these are things that we can adapt to being more tactical and some, it's a conversation that we're having. And what you said, like protective toe, uh, that's something that we've been working on. And the challenge there, of course, is to be, again, maintain that natural movement thing. Because if you make something too stiff from the ball of your foot forward, that's where things get really bad. So, um, we're that, that's, we have some interesting engineering challenges that we're playing with there. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to seeing that. But I think for everyone listening, we've got two two kind of avenues. Firstly, is what you do when you're at home. So if you totally, if you can have the best footwear or, or barefoot when you're at home, same way as sleep. I talk about that a lot. You know, your yep. sleep hygiene at home is going to pay forward into your shitty sleep at the fire station. <laughs> no, you nailed it. I mean, some people, you know, there are people who will argue with me, uh, mostly just from their own thoughts and uh and how they've extrapolated their experience but not based on data for example and and i'll say look i'm not going to try and talk you out of what you're doing if you're fine in your shoes great you know keep going but when you are not running in those shoes doesn't it make sense to do something that'll strengthen your feet and improve your balance i mean wouldn't you want that is there any reason not to have that or when it's summer instead of putting instead of putting on a pair of flip-flops where you have to unnaturally move your you know grip with your toes and uh and and move your feet in a way that is not optimal wouldn't you rather have something that lets your feet work naturally that again can help strengthen your feet and improve your balance so just you know wear these for recovery for active recovery or for just just general strengthening if you know if you see that that research holds holds uh, weight for you and then you know do whatever you want to do in your other shoes now i will confess that um it, it's kind of a red herring because once you get used to wearing something that's lightweight and lets your toes spread and lets your feet move, it's really addictive. 
the number of people that we know who have 10 pairs of our shoes or where their entire family has, you know, like 50 pairs of our shoes is really high because you, you can't go back to squeezing your foot into something that um, is too tight and too narrow and doesn't let you feel and messes with your posture at, at a certain point. It just doesn't feel right. Yeah. Now, what about the um, the kind of CrossFit high intensity interval training um, yeah. arena? Because that's something I do. I mean, I, I love again barefoot. I do most of mine barefoot, but there are some things like you know rope climbs. Obviously, running if we're out on on the asphalt, it's not the best best uh, surface to be running on. Um, how do the the shoes hold up in that kind of arena? Well, our soles have a five thousand mile war- sole warranty, so they do fine in terms of you know just general wear and tear. Most shoes, they say you're supposed to replace them every every three to five hundred miles. Miles. And research from Dr. Brian Heiderscheidt shows that that's optimistic, that the foam in most shoes starts to become crap after about 150 to 200 miles. And in fact, those new super maximalist shoes, some of those, I think the one from Brooks, they explicitly say that, you know, replace it after 100 miles, which means it's probably shot before that. Um, and so, so the durability is something that's important to us. For things like rope climbing, where you can be putting a lot of force on the upper of the shoe um, and be ripping through almost any synthetic material, it just so happens that we're, we have a shoe coming out in 2021 that we call the 360 that is specifically designed for things like that. Beautiful. Beautiful. Because I know that's something I found with some of my you know quote unquote running shoes as they were great until i climbed a rope and it just shredded <laughs> it was the base it was the actual sole oh um, interesting so yeah wow. so that's good to hear because i think that's it i mean there's such a such a popular um outlet well, and i hope to god it actually you know fitness becomes even more of a priority in 2021 people actually well, learn from 2020 well let's back up are you telling me that you're not strong enough to climb a rope without using your legs i do that most of the time so (laughs) i will deliberately not wear shoes because i know how much it hurts completely barefoot um but yeah when there's there's sometimes where it's you know multiple multiple rope climbs and i'm like all right this is one where i gotta put some shoes on because it's gonna hurt like hell (laughs) at at a certain point i mean that's one of those things i mean you know as a gymnast and and also as a pole vaulter we just used to do a a lot of you know no legged rope climbing which works up which is really great um except for that last rep where you can barely make it and then you tend to slide down the rope and um rack yourself on the knot at the bottom (laughs) <laughs> well, you mentioned the uh, the Chinese pole. I think I'm going to open a strip club with 30 feet poles, so the, the most <laughs> athletic strippers in the world can come. <laughs> it, Chinese pole, like I remember the first time I saw Cirque du Soleil, and there's the, they did a Chinese pole act, and one of the guys did a thing where he basically kind of walks up to the pole and then climbs up. The, well, climbs is not the right word. His body is parallel to the pole, and he's just climbing up without his, you know, his legs coming. I mean, his body's parallel to the pole, and he's spinning around the pole while climbing up the pole, and then coming back down the same way. And everyone else is kind of like, you know, applauding a little bit. But as a gymnast who knew how hard that was, I was jumping up and down, screaming. Um, and I learned how to do that. And man, it is not easy. You got to have lats like a like a truck. Yeah, it's like the the human flag. I don't think people realize how hard that uh, is. Too. Like, that's actually that's actually easier than people think. Um, I, I've been able to do that for forty plus years, but um, it, it, that, there's because there's a little bit of leverage and a little bit of angles you can do. But this is but that thing. I mean, I, I wish I could describe it better uh, for people who, who obviously can't see it. It's just it looks like it's no big deal because the people who can do it make it look like no big deal. But it is a very big deal. 
Absolutely. All right. Well, then, so kind of coming back to to modern day now with your own, um, you know, athletic journey. So what was it that years and years later, once you'd, you know, overcome some of the imbalances and issues that you found in your own feet and running gait, what was it that that allowed you to be the best in your division, having not sprinted for several decades? Um. I was at the the World Masters Track and Field Championships in Finland 12 years ago or so, and I came up to all of the uh, like 85 plus athletes that I could I could approach, and I asked them the same question. I said, "So is it nature or nurture?" And they all had the exact same answer. They all said, "It's genetics that allows me to be here, and it's training that allows me to beat the guy sitting next to me." And so um, my argument is that um most of my thing is genetic as it is for um, well there's also there's a uh, former olympic hurdler named ralph mann who wrote an incredible book about sprinting technique and he says you know there's eight things that you need to be a sprinter the first seven of them are genetic and the eighth is how well you maximize your genetics so um sprinters are born not made but then, um, then they also say sprinting is made. Sprinters are also made in the weight room, which is not totally true. But the gist is that there are things that you can do to become a better sprinter. The most important is just running as fast as you can. Um, that there's nothing that's there's no substitute for simply sprinting more. And I've actually been doing some drills lately that really, really give me a great workout. But they're also um, designed to be well. I mean, they're designed to be helping you develop proper technique while you're sprinting. So the first is an acceleration drill where you have cones that are laid out at a progressively a progressively larger spacing in between them. And the idea is that you your foot should be hitting where that cone is without something without overstriding. And the the line is that the and this is for the drive phase. This is for getting out of the blocks until you're 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 upright. And the 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 instruction is you want to violently push yourself to standing. So one of the images is if you um, if you took a chair and just had someone sitting in a chair and you had to push them, you know, you'd be leaning at about a 45 degree angle. Your feet would be underneath or behind your center of mass as you tried to push them forward. And so this cone drill, the acceleration cone drill, teaches you to basically do that without having someone sitting in a chair in front of you. So that's one drill that really gets you going. Um, and you change the spacing of the cones based on um, how fast you're able to run, how well you're able to push, and of course your height and leg length. Then there's a similar drill that's for the middle phase, that's for the maximum velocity phase of sprinting, where you take little um, mini hurdles. They're like six to nine inches high. And similarly, you lay them out with progressively longer spacing, depending on your leg length and your speed, et cetera. And, and it's a really funny thing because it's totally psychological. What these things are training you to do is what's referred to as front side mechanics, which is basically um, just the recovery phase from once your foot leaves the ground to when your foot is in front of you and is coming back to, to touch the ground again. Um, it's teaching your brain to move your leg in the optimal path for doing that. But what's so funny is you treat these hurdles like they're two feet high. Your brain does, even though a, they're only like six to nine inches high. And B, if you kicked one, you would never notice you're not going to trip. You're not going to fall down. So it's this very funny psychological thing, but it really helps you work on just, um, the proper recovery and then the proper movement as you're bringing, as you're 
extending your leg out in front of you and then bring it back to the ground to contact the ground um, to help do that in the right way so you're hitting the ground with as much force as you possibly can. And so both of those are super, super helpful. And then there's a whole bunch of other drills. Um, and there's some things that I do in the weight room as well. A lot of like one-legged Romanian deadlifts, um, uh, a lot of squat jump things, um, plyometric stuff. I'm, I'm very much into jumping onto and off of things. Um, I have a kind of stupid high vertical leap or I can jump onto things that are proportionately stupidly high. Like I jumped onto something, a bunch of boxes that I think were either 52 or 54 inches high, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but I'm only uh, five foot four. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, that is a big deal. <laughs> yeah. It looks pretty crazy. Um, and, uh, and it's sad because I used to be able to do 60 inches, but that was 10 years ago. So, um, uh, what else do I do? Um, uh, I'm, I'm about to buy a machine that I've wanted to buy for a long time, that it's a reverse hyperextension machine that you can also use as a quadruped hip extension. Basically you're kneeling on the ground and kicking one leg up behind you and you have, you can do that weighted. And I want to get that machine for two reasons. One, it's good for working on glute strength and hip extension strength. But the other is the reverse hyper, um, might, can be for some people good uh, wait, let me try that in English can be good for some people who have, uh, the lower back problem that I have it can help uh, just, you know, kind of help realign things a little bit and stretch things out and strengthen them. There's a very famous strength training coach who, who blew out his back and he developed the reverse hyper, uh, and, um, Louis uh, Simmons, it's Louis Simmons. Yeah. And so Louis swears by the reverse hyper. And so I found one online and um, I just don't have anywhere to put it yet, but we're moving into a new house in a couple of months and there'll, there'll be room for it there. Beautiful. Yeah. And I've heard a lot of good things. Actually, Joe Rogan, I know he uh, he bought one as well and said his back was so oh, yeah. much better. Yeah. I, in fact, I saw the one that he bought. Um, his is like a couple thousand dollars. Mine is $400. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, it's it's a, a, a mat and then a hinging uh, weight area, yeah. isn't it? So. Yeah. It's, I mean, you could you could build one on your own, and I would, except that I am lazy. <laughs> well, like you said, and if you've got one that's actually you know engineered properly, then then that's it's safer. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. All right, um, one more thing before we go to some some closing questions, I want to make sure that I ask you is when you know when we do use barefoot um, or excuse me minimalist shoes, there's always that should I wear socks? Shouldn't I? And then and also if I don't cleaning them so you know what's your philosophy on socks and then um the, the kind of cleanability of zero shoes one of the saddest aspects of my life is that i have an incredible collection of tie-dye socks and what's sad about that is that i haven't worn them in 12 years <laughs> <laughs> so um so socks are totally optional but if you're going to wear socks you want to wear the thinnest sock you can get away with because again you don't want anything to be reducing that feedback that you're getting from the ground. Um, so there are some like really thin merino wool socks and some, th some thin synthetic socks as well from companies like Drymax that, uh, that are good if you're in the mood to wear socks. Uh, in terms of cleaning things, there's <laughs> some people say, oh, you know, these shoes, uh, eventually they smell. It's like, well, that's your feet, man. So there's no way to prevent, there's no way to, to, violate the laws of physics, chemistry, or biology, I have found. So if you are sweating in your shoes and you don't let them dry out well, then bacteria can collect in there and it's the bacteria that smell. Um, so there are a number of products and I can't recommend a specific product because I found that different products work differently for different people. But if you want to wash the shoes, um, you can. I would throw them in a bag like a 
either a mesh bag or a um, pillowcase or something so they don't get bounced around and wash them. Actually, what's best is wash them by hand in cold water with some soap. Um, but if you're not going to do that, then cold water um, um, with as little agitation as possible and a bunch of other stuff in the washing machine and air dry. And the, the insoles, the sock liner, they're replaceable also. So you can always just buy another pair of those. Um, and by the way, since they're, those sock liners are removable, if you want more or less barefoot feeling, you can, you can mitigate that or modulate that by keeping the insole in if you want a little more cushion protection and taking it out if you want more barefoot feeling. Beautiful. All right. Well, then transition to closing questions. The first one I'd love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend that can be related to our discussion today or something completely different? <laughs> I'm glad you said um, something completely different. I'm going to recommend two books that have nothing to do with running. Actually, I'm going to recommend three books, one that has everything to do with running, which is the book Born to Run, which really started this whole natural movement, barefoot, minimalist thing, even though it's not really about barefoot and minimalist, just that it has chapters in there that feature Dan Lieberman's research and talks about the Tatamata Indians who um, came up to run the Leadville 100. In the first year they did it in their Warache sandals, which were made from scraps of used tire and some leather. Uh, but the second year they were sponsored by, oh, I'm blanking on which shoe company sponsored them and they started out in those shoes, but then uh, kicked off the shoes and finished the race barefoot. And uh, so and, and even if you're not a runner, uh, it's just a great adventure tale. Now, there's a documentary that just came out on ESPN on their 30 by 30 series called The Infinite Race. That is there's I, I did a review of a review of the movie. I haven't actually had time to watch it yet, but I know there's some things in it. There's some some Tarumara who. Uh, are upset by the popularity of that book and what that did to their community. And there are some people who are saying, you know, why would you run barefoot? I mean, that's stupid. But of course, this is in a culture where where having shoes is a luxury and a status symbol. So there's lots of reasons to run barefoot. And um, uh, but anyway, it's a, it, it, it's an interesting it's an interesting Again, I haven't seen the movie and I hate reviewing something I haven't seen, but I'm, I, I just, again, did the review of the review. Um, and, and I will confess that that what's going on in the Copper Canyon of Mexico has been horrible for a long time. Drought and famine, bad health care, um, lack of education. We've been supporting the Tarumara Children's Hospital Fund since day one that we started the business by donating a portion of the revenue, not our profits, but the revenue we generate from sales of some of our products to help out there. Um, the Terramata Children's Hospital Fund has been working in the Copper Canyon since the 70s, um, all volunteers. So um, that's something we've been able to, to, and very happy to have been able to, to support for quite a while. Um, so anyway, Born to Run, my wife, not a runner, not an athlete, loved the book, just really well written. And by the way, Chris McDougall, who wrote the book, when I asked him about uh, this documentary, um, he says, I, I stand by the book. And I think that's a fine position to take. The other two books that I will recommend are books that changed my life because they changed the way I think in ways that uh, really made life better for me, I would say. And the first is called Stumbling on Happiness, written by Dr. Daniel Gilbert from Harvard. Um, he's got a TED Talk where he basically talks about what the book's about, and I'll do the Reader's Digest version now. Here's the short form. A, almost every thought we have is trying to predict in the future, and the future could be a second from now or the end of our life, 
what we need to do to be happier or, or trying to avoid how unhappy we think we might be in the future. Two, we're horrible at doing either of those. We have no idea what's going to really make us happy, nor do we have any way of predicting how our unhappiness might move into the future. People who uh, are very unhappy now tend to be less unhappy than they ever imagined in less time than they ever imagined. Three, um, we forget how bad we are at predicting the future of our happiness or unhappiness. And then four, we think we're special. And what I mean by that is if you think that you know what it would take to make you happy and then you found a million people who got that thing that you think you need and you found out that they were no more happy than they were before they got it and no more happy than you are, you'd still think, yeah, but if I got it, so like, <laughs> you know, you hear people who win the lottery and they say they're no happier and you think, yeah, but if I won the lottery, so, um, and he has at the very end of the book, a prescription for how to become happier, which is go find, you know, as many people as you possibly can who got the thing that you think you need to be happy and check and see, you know, what their life is like. And if you discover with enough people that they're really no happier than either you are or than they were before getting whatever that is, then when that thought of I'll be happy in the imagined future comes up, it just doesn't have as much weight. Like that Zen archery story, you just don't pay attention to that thought. It's like, yeah, all right, that's just what brains do. They're designed to try to predict the future. They suck at it. So I'm not going to pay attention. Um, and uh, so there's that. And then the third book is Fooled by Randomness by Nassim Taleb, who also wrote The Black Swan, which more people know that book. That was his second book. But Fooled by Randomness, the subtitle is something along the lines of The Hidden Role of Chance in, in Markets and Life. And what it highlights is how we undervalue luck in our life. And when we overvalue our own efforts and our own responsibility in the things that happen to us and to businesses that we help or that we run or that, you know, whatever we're doing, um, we're setting ourselves up for real problems. The number one predictor of business failure is that the people who are running the business were successful in the previous business because they think that they, that they were successful because of things that they did that they're now trying to reproduce. And often, uh, what they did was not the causative factor for their previous success. If you ask people how they became successful, they'll tell you a story about all the things they did. If you ask them how much luck and chance and fate and things out of their control were responsible for their success, they'll tell you a much more animated story that's much more accurate and, and completely irreproducible. Um, I had a, when I was in film school, I had a, a teacher who was a, um, Milos Forman director. He directed Valmont and, um, uh, um, one flew over the cuckoo's nest and I mean, lots of movies. And somebody asked, asked Milos one day, what's the secret to making a good movie? And he said, well, you know, 90% of making good movie is casting. And the other 10% is, um, also casting. And <laughs> so, and, and when you meet the actors who he casts, man, he's, I mean, he finds the perfect person. They don't have to do a lot. They are that character in many ways and they can do that thing, you know, effortlessly. And so with business, I like to say it's 90% luck. And then the other 10% is also luck. And then there's a separate hundred percent where 90% of that is working your butt off. And the other 10% is hopefully being smart enough to know how to put out the fires that started overnight, despite the fact that nothing changed since yesterday. So, um, fooled by randomness is just a, is just a great book for 
knocking out of your brain um, the you know what it does? I'll tell you what it really did. It made it so that I really stopped comparing myself to other people because, you know, when someone says, well, um, get business advice from Bill Gates or from Richard Branson or Steve Jobs or whatever, it's like, haven't you noticed there isn't another Bill Gates or Richard Branson or Steve Jobs? I don't know anything about these guys. They are the way they are for the same reason that I was an all American gymnast, weird genetics, great, good fortune. And so since I can't recreate those, I am not those people, why would I try to emulate them um, rather than I then figure out what parts of my personality are best suited for what I'm trying to do and then find other people to fill in the blanks for the parts that I suck at. And that's the basic thing that, you know, we keep trying. The luckiest thing for me is that somehow my wife decided to go out with me and we are just a really, really good team. She's a finance operations person. I'm a product marketing person. And we both think that if it weren't for the other person, neither of us would be here. And we're both right. Beautiful. And that kind of circles around to the beginning with your gymnastics coach, Jack Leonard, where, you know, you, you're finding your own potential rather than measuring up against someone else. Yeah, I guess it is. I mean, I, you know, I know the things that I'm good at and that I can get better at. And I know the things that I suck at. And luckily, Lena does a bunch of those things. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, you mentioned The Infinite Race. Are there any other movies or documentaries that you love to recommend? Um, well, of course, The Matrix and Fight Club, two greatest movies ever written. Uh, and, uh, and Three Kings. Those are three of my favorite movies just for the fun of it. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, 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 uh, uh, wait, what, um, Wait, there's one other. Oh, God. There was one movie that I saw. I'm blanking on the name. I'm really bad with film names, which is ironic since I have a degree in film. Um, oh, come on. There was one movie that a whole bunch of us, when we were in film school, we all went and saw. It was a Terry Gilliam movie, um, and I'm blanking on the title. And when we walked out of the movie, we all looked at each other and went, why are we even bothering? Um, and now I'm blanking on which one it was. Oh, it's going to make me crazy. All right, just look up any Terry Gilliam movie and go see that. Beautiful. All right. Um, is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this show as a guest to speak to the first responders, mm -hmm. military and associated professions of the world? Uh, yeah, a couple of people. So Dr. Mark Cucuzella, who is an Air Force guy who also owns or he's a doctor who was in the Air Force and he also owns a minimalist shoe store called Two Rivers Treads. Um, so Mark has a lot of experience with people in the military and various tactical people and first responders. Um, also, of course, Dr. Irene Davis at Harvard, who's the preeminent researcher for natural movement. Uh, who else would be a lot of fun? Those are those are my two biggies. Beautiful. Excellent. Well, then next question before we, well, last question, should I say, before we kind of wrap up and make sure everyone knows where to find you and Zero Shoes, what do you do to decompress? <laughs> um, so my life is pretty simple. I roll out of bed. I go to the bathroom. I check the inner tubes to make sure nothing has exploded. Um, I sometimes have breakfast. I go to work. I come home. I cook dinner. Uh, and then we, Lane and I, curl up on the couch and watch a movie or, or something on TV. And then I double check the email and then I go to sleep. And then I repeat that six days a week. And on the seventh day, um, I'm on the track. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, actually, I take it back. I forgot. There's something. Um, after, I, I tend to wake up kind of early, so between between the or in between bathroom and food, um, I get a workout in. So I'm, I've been throwing kettlebells around a lot lately because that's been really fun. Or those other things that I described, like you know, lots of plyometric stuff. 
Beautiful. Now, when you're doing the kettlebell training, you do it completely barefoot. Oh yeah, yeah. That's, I love that too. And people will tell, oh, what if you drop it on your foot? I'm like, look, at, look at your well, look at your shoes. You think it's going to be any different? Right. Yours are going to hurt right. too. So, but yeah, when exactly. I'm barefoot, yeah. I know my foot knows to be more uh, aware than when I'm not barefoot. Yeah, um, it's kind of like when people say when people say things like going barefoot, you're going to step on hypodermic needles and get Ebola, and it's like. Um, or, you know, you're going to step in dog poop. It's like, when's the last time you stepped in dog poop? They go, I don't know, 20 years ago. I said, well, why are you going to start now? So, uh, you know, when you take off your shoes, you just start to pay more attention to what you're doing with your feet. And I've in the 12 years, 12, 13 years that I've been predominantly barefoot, I've had two injuries and they're the exact same injury. I stubbed my toe twice. Yeah. Yeah, Does I've it? only done one. I I, I was uh, deadlifting kettlebells and just I wasn't paying attention and I just kind of scraped the side of my foot. But then again, we're talking about skin. That was it. Yeah, no big deal. Yeah. All right. Well, then for people listening, I'm sure they're intrigued. So where can they find Zero Shoes online and are there any other outlets to reach out to you? Yeah. So um, not surprisingly, we're at zeroshoes.com. That's X-E-R-O shoes.com. But don't worry if your browser tries to autocorrect that to zero with a Z because I own that domain as well and it redirects. And also um, on social media, pretty much at zero shoes or slash zero shoes wherever you at or slash. Beautiful. Well, Stephen, I want to say thank you so much. I want to say thank you to Miguel for for connecting us and, and to you for taking the time because this is yeah, you know, I, I, this whole project is about improving people's lives and hopefully even saving lives. And the yeah. shoe element, I think, is just such an underappreciated part of overall, you know, wellness. So thank you for educating us today, and thank you for you know the, the solution that you have at Zero Shoes. Um, my pleasure. I, I appreciate being able to share this. I mean, our mission is really simple. We're helping we're we're helping people rediscover that natural movement is the obvious, better, healthy choice the way we currently think of natural food. Um, and then we're just trying to change the world one foot at a time. <laughs> <laughs>